Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Good morning, Venture. Christmas is one week away. Yeah, some of you are cheering and some of you are like, oh, crud. Either way, I know it's a stressful time of year for some, but it's a celebration time of year, a lot going on. And Charlie threw at you all the things that are happening around here, all the different changes, the times. I'd, I'd encourage you, make sure you go online, make sure you're aware of everything that's going on. Hopefully you got information as you came in. Also, you should have been handed uh, again the insert regarding the uh, elder selection process and what we're doing with Aaron Anderson. And so we'll do one more week if you've got any input based on that. I told you about it last week, but if you've got input, we, we wanna give you time to hear back from you. We're excited about that, excited about what God's doing in the process. We're also really excited about Christmas Eve. And, and I wanna follow up with Charlie said, we've got these tools back here. These are more effective than you realize. A card, a gift box. Uh, we do the same thing. We, we get the gift box, put some goodies in it and give it to neighbors and that. And, and just, it's a simple way of inviting someone to come and be a part of the services. And uh, Christmas is that time of year. People aren't offended by being invited to a Christmas Eve service. You'd be amazed. A candlelight service, we'll have a kid's choir. There's a lot of elements with it. And as Charlie said, the team has been working really hard. But most of all, it just gives us the opportunity to tell the world not only that Jesus came, but why he came. And so I would encourage you on your way out, grab as many of these as you like, as, as, as many of friends and the boxes as well. That's what they're there for, is to be able to partner with you that we can share this good news together. Uh, I'm excited about that, excited about all that we have in store with that. I'm also excited because today, it's our, our last Sunday morning where we're gathered together this year. We'll be online together next week. I told you at the beginning of this year we were gonna finish the book of Romans and we're gonna finish the book of Romans. We are keeping a commitment. In fact, we're coming to the part of Romans that uh, it's frankly a part of the book. A lot of people just blow by. You kind of finish the core teaching, but uh, there's actually some things that really stand out in Romans 16. If you've got a Bible, turn to Romans 16. If you didn't bring one, you can use the, the blue one in the room. It's uh, page 1,129, Romans 16, as Paul is finishing out, and, and you'll see in it, one of the reasons people blow by it is it's kind of the finishing parts of the letter. Sometimes we forget, we think Paul sat down and he goes, man, I've got to write one of the greatest books of the Bible. He actually sat down and wrote a letter to a church, a real church in Rome with real people and as was the custom of that time, at the end of the letter is when you put your greetings to people. You put both greetings to the people you're writing to, but you would also put greetings from the group that you're writing from. And so one of the reasons we skip through it is there's just a lot of names in Romans 16. is Paul's greeting people. But as you look through this, there's two things that kind of jump out at me at this last chapter. It's kind of this final point of all that we've covered in Romans where he's covered the doctrine of what does the gospel actually mean? And we went through 11 chapters of that. And then the last from 12 through 15, we've been looking these chapters, how do you live out that gospel? And then when he gets real practical now, as he's writing these real people, 
The two things that jump out, the the first one that jumps out just reading through this is that especially to the apostle Paul, people matter. Real people matter. In fact, I got it up here because I just want to highlight these names that mean nothing to us. It's kind of like reading someone else's Christmas letter of people you don't know at all. You kind of look at it, okay, yeah, whatever, whatever. That's kind of what we do with this. But these were real people. And and notice, and we'll just highlight some of the names. I'll put them in red up here so you can see. This first one, Paul is sending a woman named Phoebe with the letter. We don't know if she was a courier or if she went with the group. But he says, I want to commend to you our sister Phoebe. He calls her a servant of the church. That word servant is actually deacon. She may have been a deaconess. And so she's a leader in the church. She served in the church. That that you welcome her in a way worthy of the saints, help her in whatever way she may need from you. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. In other words, she's been one of my financial supporters so that I've been able to do my ministry. It's interesting, if you read in the New Testament, there's a few people that are mentioned as patrons like this. Those who had enough wealth that they could support the church, they'd support Paul individually. Phoebe's one of those people. It's also interesting, most of the names you see like that that are called patrons are women. Women that were willing to use their wealth for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says, hey, frankly, I would not have been able to do my ministry apart from her support. So welcome her. And then he starts just listing these names, Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila. uh, They're listed in other places. Prisca is the short and firm of it. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. And so he's writing this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. We actually see them in the book of Corinthians. And Paul met them in Corinth. We see in in Acts, when Paul was a tent maker by trade, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers as well. And so they had been kicked out of Rome initially. Paul meets them in Corinth. They form a church in their home. So they were a wealthy couple and they were able to host the church in their home. So the church in Corinth started because of them. They hosted the church in Ephesus as well. And now here they're back in Rome, impacting the church there. It's just interesting to me. Here's this couple. They weren't apostles. They weren't professional ministers. They were tent makers by trade. But they were incredible disciplers and teachers. And they used their home. They used their resources. And because of that, three of the most influential churches, the church at Ephesus, the church in Corinth, and the church at Rome, all owe them a debt of gratitude. That's why Paul, when he writes, he says, all the churches of the Gentiles should give thanks. And whether we realize it or not, when you take those three churches and the impact and multiply that through history, we have a debt of thanks to a couple who were never apostles. They weren't prophets, but God used them because they had a vision that their life was more than just about business. It's more than just about owning home. It's how do we use our resources? How do we use our home? How do we use our life in a way that has impact? That here we are as a Gentile church 2000 years later. And it wouldn't be hard to trace back the impact of this couple, even in the world today. Paul starts listing off names, Epineus. He's the first convert to Christ in Asia. That's interesting. 
First one in Asia who came to Christ is Epineus. Mary, who's worked hard, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they're well known to the apostles. They were in Christ before me. So they're fellow Jews and uh, they came to Christ before Paul. So they've been working in the gospel for years. Implietus, Urbanus, uh, Stechius, Apelles, who's approved by Christ. Uh, he just listing off names back and forth. And this is the part where we kind of just start moving through it. Herodian, Narcissus. These are both royalty. These are people that come from noble families. And so very wealthy, Narcissus as well. So he says, hey, I want to highlight them. Trephana, Trephosa, Persis, Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, who's been a mother to me. That's interesting, a little highlight to Paul's life. Rufus, by the way, he's the son of Simon the Cyrene. Mark tells us, Simon the Cyrene, remember who helped Jesus carry his cross on the way to Golgotha? Well, his son was Rufus. And Simon's wife, who's the mother of Rufus, was like a mother to Paul. You start seeing these connections that you go, man, these are real people that happened in real history. And there's connections across the church in this. And, and then he just starts listing all these names. It's interesting. You'll see a mix of these names if you study them, a mix of Jewish names and a mix of Romans names, Roman names, uh, you, you, different parts of the world that are represented. All the saints greet them, give them a holy kiss. That was a greeting, much like we do. Some of you hate it in the service when we say, hey, turn around and greet each other. Turn around and connect with each other. Extroverts, you love it. You want about a 10 minute segment of it. <laughs> Introverts are like, oh crud, they're doing it again. Now, the reason we do this, Paul says this, hey, greet each other. Now we don't make you kiss each other because that's not how we greet each other today. But he says, hey, you, you need to connect. There needs to be a relationship here. You skip a little bit later in the book and Paul says, hey, I'm writing you, Timothy's with you. These are the people with Paul as he sends the letter. Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. You say, wait, I thought Paul wrote the letter. Paul dictated the letter. Tertius actually wrote the letter. And so Tertius kind of throws this in. I, Tertius, who wrote the letter. He kind of puts his in there. Great trivia question. You can stump somebody sometime. If you ask them, who wrote the book of Romans? They'll say Paul every time. You go, nope, Tertius. And then you show them the verse. And then they'll walk away and say, you are a Bible nerd. So, you know, with that. I greet you in the word, Lord, Gaius, who's host to me, Erastus, the city treasurer. This is fascinating, Erastus. Paul's writing this from Corinth. And so if you go to Corinth today, they've excavated the road, they've excavated the Colosseum, all the different parts of Corinth from Paul's day. You can actually walk on the exact same bricks Paul walked on. And it's interesting there, they've excavated the names of the city officials that were written there. And one of the names that are written there is Erastus, the city treasurer. I mean, again, it's just archeology span confirming what we know to be truth of real people in real time. And our brother Quartus greets you. Now, it, it's fascinating to look at all these names, but I, I wanna step back for a minute and go, okay, in one of the most important theological letters, in one of the most important works in the church, why would God include this in the Bible? Now, part of it is to show us, yeah, these are real people, this happened in a real context, 
These books of the Bible weren't written by some committee hundreds of years later, like you'll hear, you can Google different things. None of that stuff's true. If you go back to the scholars who've actually studied this, they date back to this time period. But here's what jumps out to me when I look at the apostle Paul, because it's easy to think of Paul as this solitary apostle and he's going around and planting these churches and he's all by himself and he's doing this all alone. And yet if you look in his life, People matter. They matter to him every step of the way. In fact, as you look at this, here's what stands out. Paul's relationships are marked by diversity. We see all types of people in all walks of life. You see a level of diversity of the, if you study the different names, if you look at it, the groups of people, the nationalities that are represented there, the races that are represented there, there's this mix when he's writing the people of Rome, when he's writing the people, and these are just the ones he knows up personally. He says, look of this mix of people and this mix of life, the diversity of, of nationalities, the diversity of men and women. About nine names of the list of 22 are women, women who are leaders in the church, women who are contributing, women who are a key part of it. This, this diversity of socioeconomics, many of the names on the list were the names given to those who were slaves, who were poor. And then you have that mix of name like Herodias and Narcissus of ones that we know that were nobility. And again, it gives us this snapshot picture that when you came into the church in Rome, it, it was that place where you'd find slaves. It was that place where you'd find noble people, a place where you had men and women. It's a place where you had a mix of races and people and nationalities that came together. This, this great diversity, exactly what Paul says in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And, and, and I love that this is not just a sentiment for the church. This isn't something that he says, oh, it should be that way. Paul doesn't write this because it's aspirational. Man, in Jesus, man, we should, be, we should be a mix of people that there's no races, it's male and female, all together in that. Paul says, no, this is reality in Christ Jesus. And when you look to a list like Romans, you go, oh, it was actually reality in the first century church. It was a re miraculous reality in a world that was so divided by classes, in a world that was so divided by races, in a world that was so divided in, in every way possible that suddenly you had this group, you had this organization that came together that was mixed in all these things. And people looked at it and they go, man, how could that happen? It happened because of Jesus that he is the uniting factor that cut across all of that. Paul has a church and he's writing a church that was diverse. The, the snapshot that we have of it. The second thing you see is, is just his community. There's an intentional investment in people that he made. Intentional investment. As, as driven as he was, as an evangelist as he was, as a church planner as he was, as he was a guy who was always moving every stop of the way, he didn't just do the ministry invested in people. This intentional investment that frankly doesn't happen apart from intentionality. This need for community. This need for relationships in our lives. 
that, you know, I've quoted it before, but you can look at study after study on health impact, study after study on mental health impact, study after study that's come out. And the number one factor in someone's life that will determine your health, determine your mental health, determine your happiness, it always comes back to the same thing, relationships, the people in your life. In fact, the, the single longest study that's been done on any group it started in 1937 at Harvard. They tracked 268 men and tracked them for 70 years. I mean, it's an amazing longitudinal study of 70 years over the course of their life. And they looked at their careers. They looked at all the wealth. They looked at the different impact and what happened with it. And the number one factor by far that surfaced over the whole study that determined happiness and satisfaction in life went back to relationships. And I say that because I love that when Jesus Christ called us into his church at the very core of it, it's a relationship with him, but it's a relationship with each other. We were never meant to do this alone. That when God looked at Adam, he said, it's not good for a man to be alone. And he gave not only marriage, but he also gave church. He gave community. And it's this place that we're called that we can do life together, but we have to be intentional about it. It doesn't just happen. Uh, the third thing you see, there's a commitment. They're all united around the cause of Christ. They didn't just come together because they liked being together. They didn't just cross lines because they said, oh, we really ought to do that. We ought to have an organization that represents everybody. No, there was this commitment to Christ. Christ is what united. When you have that higher thing, it's amazing how some of the things that divide you start melting away. Uh, interesting parallel to that uh, Wes Selinger. He writes in his book, One Church from the Fence. He said, I've spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room, watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of over 30 years? The intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. A person is a father first, a black man second. The garbage man loves his wife as much as the university professor loves his. And everyone understands this. Each person pulls for everyone else. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next report. If only it will show improvement. Everyone knows that loving someone else is what life's all about. And I've said I've spent enough time in those same waiting rooms. It is amazing how this is true. Because when you're there, there's something so much more important, the health, the, the diagnosis, whatever the person you're waiting for. And there's a unity of that cause together that really does strip away so many of the things that would divide us outside of that. Selinger ends, he says, long before we're in the intensive care waiting room, what would it look like to live like that? 
And, and I think that challenge goes to the core of the challenge of what God's calling us to in church. We're called to live like that, not just in a waiting room. We're called to live like that in life. And the universal cause that causes us to live like that is the cause of Christ. It's because we know Jesus, because we know they need Jesus. Because we know life is hard, guys. And it's hard for people outside the church and people inside the church. And there's this unique miracle that God has done in uniting us together from all walks of life, from all status. We're together under the cause of Christ. We treat each other and we treat people differently because we're focused on something more important of what really matters. Let me just ask you, who are the people that matter to you? Who's your list of people? I mean, Paul rattles it off pretty quick. And by the way, if you read all of his letters, he's got different people in different cities. Rome wasn't the collection of all his friends. And so what about you? Who are the people that matter to you? How are you intentionally investing in others? How are you intentionally? Because it's not gonna happen apart from intentionality. Life gets busy and our focus on self gets so busy, it will squeeze us out really quick unless we're intentional about it. How are you stretching outside of your comfort zone? I mean, when, when you went down Paul's list, I mean, there were all different kind of people. What about your list? If you were to look at the, the people of your world, is everybody exactly the same? Same social status? Same season of life, exactly like you, looks like you. Where is there space at your table for those who are different? And where are you intentionally investing in it? And even in the church, because it's easy in church and especially in a big church like this, here's what I found. It's a big church. And so you're excited just to see people you know on a Sunday. And there's great, you have that community, but we can so be attracted to that all the time that we never have eyes out for those who don't know anybody. Those who could come in week in, week out and never connect. What, what would it look like that maybe on a regular basis as an individual or as a couple or as a family, when you came to church, man, you just made it your goal. I'm gonna look for somebody that maybe I don't know or they look like they don't know anyone. And you talk to them. And you invite them into your life. You go out for a meal. Guys, you, you'd be amazed if you'll have a heart that's open with that kind of intentionality You'll find yourself, the Holy Spirit will direct you to people that need that connection. I've always found that if you'll start praying in that way, if you start opening your eyes in that way, remember, we're not just drawn together by coincidence. We actually have Christ in us and the Holy Spirit who, who leads us and guides us. But do we look and do we think that way? And as we do that, do you take the time to let the people who matter to you know? I mean, it's fascinating to me with all that Paul's doing, with all that he's writing, he spends a whole chapter writing out names and highlighting people and saying something about them. 
Because he says, hey, I've got an opportunity here to let them know that they matter, to encourage them, to make connections, to honor them. And he uses it. What about the people in your life? The people that you, you list and you go, yeah, these are the people that matter to me. When's the last time you told them? When's the last time you reached out to them? When's the last time you honored them? Or just highlighted, hey, I'm so excited I see this in your life. You know, it's a great time of year to stop and do that. And, and it may be more meaningful than even a gift or anything else you do that if you took the time and you said, hey, I'm not only gonna remember the people that matter to me, I'm gonna reach out to the people that matter to me and I wanna open my life to new people who need to know they matter as well. You, you, you come to the end of this letter and the one thing that jumps out through the chapter is that Paul says people matter. Look at his final admonition. And in it, he's telling us truth matters. People matter and truth matters. Look at his final admonition. He says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. He says, there's false teachers out there. There's people that are twisting the truth. Avoid them. Don't listen to their teaching. Don't, don't get caught up in all that. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They're out for themselves in this. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive, those who are young, those who are not well-grounded. They're very deceptive. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. And I love this verse in particular. It's one I've prayed over my kids over the years I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul's just given his final admonition and it's not linked to that he's explaining the gospel or anything else. He just said, hey, can I give some counsel? You are the people that matter to me. And because you matter, can I make one more statement in your life? Hey, truth matters. Knowing the truth matters. Look what he says. He says, protect the truth. Be on guard for any teaching contrary to scripture. You guys need to be on guard. Don't let anything in your life that's contrary to scripture be a part of it. And, and he goes, even in that day, there's people walking around, they're already taking this gospel and they're twisting a little bit. And they're doing it because they're able to make money off of it. They're, they're able to create the latest ministry, the latest speaker or that. The world hadn't changed a whole lot in 2000 years. People are still doing it today. And, and Paul says, don't, don't listen to them. They're not serving Jesus. And, and more than anything, you've got to know the truth and, and rest your life on it. And with that, notice as well, he says, protect the next generation. Keep them away from false teachers. Protect the naive. Protect those who are young in the faith. Protect that next group that's coming up. You have a responsibility, those of you who are strong, those of you who know the truth, what are you doing to guard them? And, and this is hard, especially in a world today where there's so much streaming information, there's so many teachers, so much coming after each of us, but even our kids as well. Probably one of my biggest regrets as a pastor 
It wasn't in this church, at a previous church. When a lot of the new media, new teachers were coming out, and our student ministry in particular, man, they jumped on to some of the hottest new teachers. Uh, one of the guys was named Rob Bell. Rob Bell was a phenomenal teacher. Phenomenal teacher. They created videos that were phenomenal. And so our student ministry, everybody used it and we used these videos. Here's the problem. Rob was not grounded in what he believed. And so he started this theological journey. And soon you start to hear whisperings kind of in his teaching that Rob didn't really believe the Bible or all the Bible's true. And then, then, you know, the next part of it was, well, don't believe anybody actually goes to hell. And, and all these big theological steps that as you looked at it, you went, whoa, man. He became very popular. He became, Oprah called, her, called him his pastor, her pastor. I mean, it was, it was that, that level of popularity. Here, here's where I was grieved as a pastor that a lot of those young people back then that were introduced to him went on the same journey with him. And he's somebody we, we should have protected the kids from, not linked them to. And, and I say that as a, a dad with kids and the, in a world where there's a lot of teaching and coming all the time. I've gotten in my own life, when somebody gets real new and popular in the church, even when they're really great, I just give it some time. I love reading dead people now. They don't disappoint me anymore. I really do, you know. Now you can't get stuck in that because there's some great new young teachers who are really grounded in the truth. But, But I say that, that the world from Paul's generation to ours, those of us who are more mature in it, And we have a responsibility that we go, not only are we grounding them in the truth, but who are we letting speak into their life? That's why within our children's ministry, that's why within our student ministry, I'm so thankful that we have a staff who's absolutely committed to the Bible. They're absolutely committed to training the next generation in the truth of God's word. Because we have to protect in that way. He says, protect your heart, be an expert in what's good and not even a beginner in what's evil. I love that when he, when he says, man, I hope that you are so wise and you're so knowledgeable about good. You're an expert in good, but I hope you're innocent when it comes to evil. I hope evil is not something that, boy, you, you know everything about it. And, and again, I look at it and it's, it's interesting to me in the world. We live in a world and, and the reality is evil is entertaining. It just is. You, you can build entertaining shows off of evil. Evil characters, evil people. There, there's an entertainment factor with it. And I just ask us, are we guarding our hearts? Are we becoming experts in evil? Instead of really zeroing in and going, man, I'm focusing my life on the good. And again, hear me, there's a place in every story, there's evil characters in that and good conquers evil. But we live in a world where the evil characters seem to win more than the good. And Paul just says, hey, when, when I pray for you guys, when I think about you guys, I would love to look at you and, and your life is so grounded and rooted in what's good 
Instead of allowing yourself to always be an expert on what's false and evil. So you look at this in your life. What ways are you protecting your life? Just, just a couple of questions around that. Are you protecting your mind by taking God's truth every day? Here's the key. If you're going to be an expert in good, then flood your mind and your heart with good. And there's nothing more good, more proven, more truthful than God's word. And so what ways are you taking it in? This is what Paul told us in Romans 2. He says, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It starts right here. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Are you renewing your mind every day in God's truth? One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 1. The older I get, the more powerful it is. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. And I love this image. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither and all he does, he's prospers. There's this promise about life. And David's writing is what Paul's saying. If you want to be able to prosper in life, he's not guaranteeing you make a bunch of money. He's just talking about how do I live life in a way that works? Notice the two things that David points out. It's the two things Paul's pointing out in this chapter. And and young people, I say this more than anything else. The two things that will determine life for you the most are the people that you hang around with and the truth that you plant your life in. Those two things more than anything else. That's why David says, he says, man, blessed is the person who they don't sit with the seat of scoffers. They don't spend every day with people who are scoffing at the truth. They don't spend every day. And if he's writing it today, they don't spend all day watching social media of scoffers, of people that are are teaching things that are wrong, people who are laughing at everything, people that are pointing everything along. He goes, they don't plant their life in that. Their delight, man, they spend time with God. They spend time every day thinking about his truth and let it saturate their life. That's why why David wrote it and then a few thousand years later, Paul's writing the church in Romans and he says to them, hey guys, as as I'm finishing up here, hear, hear this, man, people matter. These people matter. These are the people I'd commend. These are the people to do life with. And truth matters. And truth matters. It matters in our world if ever before. And so how are you doing that? And are you protecting your heart against the deceptions of the current age? Are you protecting against the things where Paul says we destroy every argument, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive for God. There was an article in The Economist just a few years ago And the headline is what caught me. The headline said, yes, I'd lie to you. And it's talking about, it's a new term, a post-truth world. We live in a post-truth world. And the author wrote this line. He says, right now in our world, it pays to be outrageous, but not to be truthful. Whether it's politics, whether it's media, whether it's online, whether it's social media, whether it's YouTube, whether it's TikTok or whatever, if you wanna get the likes, you wanna get the looks, you wanna get the money, you wanna be known, here's what pays today. Just be outrageous, be out there, be noticed. It doesn't matter if you're telling the truth. 
In fact, nobody expects anyone to tell the truth anymore. That's the world we live in. And, and if we allow ourselves to be saturated with that all the time, then we get caught up in that too. Or we get jaded. You can get jaded to the point you, you almost say, well, yeah, nobody tells the truth. What is, what is even the truth? In a world like that, isn't it incredible that we had a God who loved us so much and we're gonna celebrate it this week, that he came into our world, that he walked on this planet, that he lived in our world, and he looked at all of us and he says, hey, 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 I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. Yeah, and, and, and he said that, and here's what the promise is. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so in a world changing, with truth even, that's changing out there, isn't it awesome that we can rest on the truth of who he is and what he's declared? And we have the privilege of declaring that consistency to the world. But see, you're, you're never gonna know that unless you protect it. And even as believers, Paul says, hey, hey, listen to me. Your life needs to be about people and needs to be about truth. Are, are you surrounding yourself? Are you commending? Are you embedding? Are you intentionally connecting to the people who draw you closer to Christ? And are you protecting your mind and are you protecting the church and you're protecting the next generation from the ongoing lies and flooding it with truth? Are you protecting your kids by being aware of what they're facing. Um, I've given up being on top of everything that's out there, but I do need to be aware. And I, I do need to be aware at a point that I go, okay, I've got a responsibility and we've got a responsibility to the church of, man, how are we grounding them in truth, but being aware of the lies that are coming at them. And, and I, I say this because we live in a world, and I'll just say this to the next generation as well. You're being told all the time, here's the new truth. Here's the new way. Trust us, this is scientific or this is proven or, or any of the other terms. And, it, and it's information that's thrown together and within a short period of time, it gets disproven in different ways. But unfortunately, people have shipwrecked their lives over that new truth. And the world kept moving, but they were impacted. There's some people shipwrecking their faith. I always think of the, one of my favorite books, uh, Hampton Sides has a book, Kingdom of Ice. And, and he, he tells in it uh, the story, it was back in 1879. In the 1870s, scientists and cartographers, map makers of that time, the, the new theory of that time that everybody was convinced of, and there was a Dr. Heinrich who was the Heinrich Peterman, who was the proponent of it the most, was that the, the North Pole was actually a sea. The North Pole is not covered by ice. It's an open sea, if we could just get to it. And they started making maps. You can find maps from that time period that there's a ring of ice, but actually it's an open sea that you could get to. And so everybody was looking for this geothermal pathway. There's some place that you've got to be able to get through that ice and you're gonna be able to sail to the North Pole. 
And George Washington DeLong and a group of 28 men, Hampton Sides covers their journey in his book. They were determined they were gonna find it. They're gonna find that geothermal pathway. And so they started sailing to the North Pole. The problem is, it's not just one band of ice. It just continues as ice. Sides has this great line in his book. He said, the team had to ultimately replace these wrong-headed ideas with the reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. Their ship became trapped. The crew got separated. Some of them were able to make their way to Siberia and live. They had to walk across the ice. They finally found DeLong, the captain of the boat. He starved to death. They found him in the ice. He was covered up with snow, except that he froze with one hand kind of defiantly in the air as he died. And I I look at it and I go, man, here's these people. Here's this crew. They were so determined. This is the map of the way life is. We're told, the experts are telling us, everybody's telling us, man, this is what is actually, and they were willing to chart their whole life on it. And it was built on a lie. It was the lie of the day, but it was a lie that cost their life. And, And I say that Because if you look in our world today, you've got all these people coming and some of them are questioning the Bible. Some of them are questioning things that have been held. Some of them are questioning doctrines in the church. I see new map makers in the name of Christianity and they're charting things and they're charting things about life and about sexuality and about all the different topics. And they're saying, this is actually the new reality. And I'm telling you, it's a lie if it disagrees with scripture. It's a lie. And we've got a generation that they're sailing their life, they're charting a course based on those lies. If we're not willing as a church, if we're not willing as people, if we're not in our own homes and our own lives, and and as you look at that, you go, yeah, Tim, what do we do? How do we do this? We do exactly what Paul told us to do 2000 years ago. You want the number one way to counter this? One, You do life with people who've built their life on the truth. You do life together. You do community together. You do church together. Not to the exclusion of the world, because remember, we're a missional church reaching out to the world. But you have core people in your life that you know they're standing on the truth with you. And then the second part of it is, you don't have to be an expert in the lies. Because the lies are going to change every day. Just become an expert in what's true. Immerse your life in God's truth. Immerse your life in God's word. Build on it every day. Guys, at, at the end of Romans, with all the truth and all that Paul's taught us in it, kind of two things that jump out. People matter. So who are the people that matter in your life? And truth matters. God's unchanging truth matters. So how are you building it every day into your life and charting your life on the, on the map, on the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I'll lead you to the Father. I'll lead you home.
All you gotta do, and I, I love this because you can look at it and go, man, do I have a right map of the world? I love it that our savior didn't leave us with the map. He said, I'll be your guide. So you just follow me and trust me. And you'll experience the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Paul and his impact on our church that even over the course of this year as we've been studying through this letter, you've used his divinely inspired words to be able to teach us and train us and shape us. Lord, I pray that this book of Romans would not just be a sermon series we look back on, but it really would be a book that we immerse our lives in the gospel. Lord, I thank you for this church and the people of this church. I, I just thank you for the people. When I, I was looking through that list and reading through this, I started thinking about the names I would list in this church and the list gets so long. A people who love you, a people who serve you, a people who have built their life upon you. So Lord, I, I thank you for the privilege of being in a church-like venture, of being surrounded by those who've been committed to the cause of Christ. Lord, I, I do pray for our kids. I pray for this next generation. I pray for those who they're trying to figure out life and they're being sold false maps of the world. But I pray that you'd give us a voice of truth that points them to Jesus. Jesus, you didn't just leave us with a map. You told us you'd be our God. And so I pray for each of us. Would we trust you enough to follow you, to love you, and, and to shepherd those you've given in our care to trust you with their lives as well? Lord, we thank you for this season. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you that we celebrate all this because you loved us enough to come into our world. Because of you, Jesus, it changes everything. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.